Hello, I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. Welcome to Season 9, Episode 6 of Seen From Above, an informal podcast about the cool things happening in Earth Observation. Check out seenfromabove.org for the podcast archive and show notes. Follow the show on Twitter via at EOSeenFrom and using the hashtag SeenFromAbove. This episode, we go remote pixel. Oh, I'll see what I did there. Let's see the news then on the 7th of April, 2021. What a better place to start than the ever given. Hey. Why not? Let's talk about boats. I don't know if, if you're on my side here on team not that bothered or team massive difference to the industry, but on team not that bothered, I am sitting thinking this picture of a stuck ship is nothing more than a marketing exercise for all the countless Earth observation satellite suppliers that are available to us and tells us pretty much nothing other than there's a stuck ship still in the Suez Canal, which is, at the time of recording has been freed and we're back to normal, um, in inverted commas. What are your thoughts on this? I think it's a win for the navigation satellite industry and a marketing tool for the Earth observation satellite industry. And it's also brilliant for AIS. I guess my perspective is that the fact that so many different images have been produced has really given Earth observation a boost in that people are seeing the variety of types of images that there are. So I've got a link that I'll put in the show notes. And I was quite impressed with the number of different types of imagery that there were taken Mm. from different satellites. And yeah, we're not really learning anything in any of them other than there's a lot of different image providers out there. I think maybe the SAR stuff. So there's a, an image in this um, link that is from Capella Space. I think that might blow the minds of people who don't use the, these types of data day in, day out. But there's a, a few nifty things. I, I came across a satellite called KhalifaSat, which I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe we've mentioned in the news before when it was being launched. But there's UAE, a, a, is it? Yeah, there's a nice image taken from that again i mean it's just a a ship stuck in a canal but i wonder whether or not i would have necessarily come across an image from khalifasat had it not been taking advantage of the fact that everyone's looking at pictures of this this ship but i still feel you're falling for it's a marketing trick in the sense that this is an area of the world that's pretty much cloud free for a long part of the part part of the year it's an exercise in tasking your satellite without the preliminary work that has to go into being able to buy an image. So, you know, Worldview is acquiring this data, but don't be under any illusion that it's acquiring this point every single day. Yeah, I mean, it gives the impression that it's super easy to just get an image of, from whichever satellite you fancy, and just pick one and the image pops up and it's cloud free and everything else and, and geo-registered. And I don't know if you've seen sort of some of the images where it's annotated in a sort of, um, sort of futuristic way where they've got a little box and then an annotated label saying what various different things are. I mean, that's that's not what just happens, obviously. Yeah, and also it's it's a stuck ship and... We probably, Earth observation isn't real time. Sometimes it can be close to being real time, near real time. The first we knew about it, Earth observation wasn't informing us. Yeah, I guess. So it gives a context in in some respects. I mean, I saw something on Twitter today where someone was saying how we, we need to be better at explaining to lay people and members of the public what things are in an image. And I was like, do we? 
do do we have to do that? I don't really understand why we can't just put up some cool images and people like most people will just go, wow, that's from space, that's cool, and then get on with their lives. But <laughs> there will be other people who will be looking at it and going, blimey, you can see, I don't know how. 30 odd rows of shipping containers from space so maybe if we look at the shadow and we know the time of day we can work out what the height of that is and therefore we can work out how many shipping containers are on there and i know there should be a manifest somewhere that says how many shipping containers are on there anyway but uh, who knows that might help someone i mean I, I just don't feel that everything has to be explained to the nth degree and really technical why can't we just have a, a big marketing splurge Mm, I think we're sort of having an argument about two different things, but I mean, I, I guess my my issue is that on Twitter and on social media, you get to see an airbrushed view, not just of the image, mm. but you also get to see an airbrushed view of the process that has gone into putting that image there. Oh, I'll agree with that. Yeah. And, and acquiring it. And it would be nice to see a, a series of images of people trying to, you know, task a satellite to monitor that boat for, for where it is now. Because I don't think you'd get as many shots. Going back to my, you know, perpetual point of you can't buy a pixel. Well, of course you don't want to buy a pixel, but we can't just buy that boat on every single day that I'm aware of. You can't just say, well, give me an image of where it is now. I also think that it's a bit of an opportunity missed to sort of highlight other things that that remote sensing can do. There would be a good opportunity to talk about biophimetry from satellite data. I can see what you're saying. So the other... The other thing that's been linked to this is um, some of the Sentinel-1 images um, where basically you've got all the bright spots in the Gulf of Suez, Mm. uh, which are the ships. And again, I think maybe you're right in the fact that there's been a sort of before image and an after image, and you can see that there's a lot more speckly dots in the after image. And it's like, okay, that means there's more ships there. But it would be really nice for someone to have applied some algorithm to go through and just really rapidly count them and be able to say, okay, there are X many more ships that are now backed up in these different parts of the canal. And similarly, we've got a whole host of different resolution optical images where everybody's looking at the the ship, but you've got all of the land cover stuff on each side, and you've got different look angles, and you've got all sorts of other components of that image. You're right, I guess. People have just gone, here's the ship, because it's in the news. But it would be quite nice to go, oh, here's the ship, and here's a bit of context. So we can see that there are some settlements here, and you know, there's this amount of green stuff or here's a road or i've not seen any of that sort of the the stuff that people always talk about when they say oh well we've got to move away from just showing people images and give them information well i've not seen anyone do that with this and you sort of think well you had a whole week or more yes in which to do that that could have been quite cool yes it's an i i feel it's an opportunity that slipped us by that said, i'm a sucker for a nice picture so (laughs) anyway i i put that out there for discussion um Really, what I wanted to talk about was this really superb blog post called the Space Speedometer, and it's using satellite data, optical data, to measure the speed of ships. And when you look at the blog post, um, I'm sure people have done it in the past, but you just, I, I sort of thought to myself, of course, and why isn't this, why don't we talk more about these kind of things um, because obviously we can acquire an awful lot of analytics about where it's pointing, what speed it's moving at, um, all this kind of information. And this is this is a really nice showcase, again, taking screenshots of 
the EO browser and using the EO browser to, to derive an analytic sort of manually. But I thought it was great. And sometimes if you can tie that to AIS data and get and get the speed of what it was moving in the direction it was pointing in at the time it was doing that, that's a very useful piece of information rather than a stuck boat. Excellent. So I've got some funding news. Another Earth Observation startup, uh, this time Live EO, which is a German startup based in Berlin, has secured 5.25 million euros uh, of funding. So congratulations to them. What they want to become is market leaders in satellite-based infrastructure monitoring, and they also want to try and expand internationally. So I don't know whether that's expand their workforce internationally or expand the type of work that they're doing internationally. But yeah, that's a, a hefty chunk of change that they can play around with for the next few years. I'm trying to think back, Series A, 5.25 million. That seems about normal, doesn't it? They get bigger as the series go up. That does seem to be quite a, a significant investment. I'll tell you what, I found in late 2020 and going into 2021 that I've just been overwhelmed, frankly, by excellent tutorials and the, the pace that they're coming down and the quality is incredible. I'm finding this sort of a, quite a defining moment in tutorials and information out there. Some of the ones that I've come across just in this short period from the last podcast is a really nice tutorial about using Sentinel-2 in Photoshop. So, you know, it's not we're not all just analytics we're, we're using the satellite data and it's nice that it's got a use case there's also this gis open courseware page that that's got a number of available courses and uh, all open source and then what i really wanted to mention i think was was earth lab i don't think we've ever mentioned them before on the, on the podcast but they do amazing tutorials and the one i've highlighted is one on git because i think github and version control is is really important so if that's something of interest to you go and check it out the the photoshop stuff is really interesting there's been a discussion recently on twitter about tools for people to use for their jobs that might not be earth observation type jobs so things like journalists and stuff like that and having a tutorial that goes through something like using photoshop is actually probably much more helpful than telling them how to fire up QGIS and, and GDAL and all the various other tools that we use day in, day out. Yeah, really amazing. And and I guess the last thing I wanted to talk about that sort of I came across was NASA. NASA have been doing, you know, they they, they check out a load of amazing resources, but there's this um, RSET for fire detection analysis course oh, yeah. that's yeah. running. Let's just read the objectives. It's really amazing, you know, to understand the components of fire, the climatic and biophysical conditions, the satellites and, and instruments used, passive and active sensors, visualizing it, the use of tools for active fires versus emissions and burned areas. It's a really fascinating part of remote sensing, I think. That's it for the news. We are super lucky this episode to have Vincent Sarago with us. He is currently of Development Seed, but it's also been from places like Mapbox and also of sites like Remote Pixel. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about your career and who you are. Uh, so yeah, Vincent Sarago, I've done plenty of different things. So I'm a geologist. I have a master's degree in geology, but uh, specialized in remote sensing because I was too lazy to go on the field and I preferred to stay uh, in front of my laptop. So I've always been a big fan of remote sensing and like, doing imagery analysis and kind of uh, stuff. My first job, like I used to work for the French and European Space Agency, and I was just uh, like 
monitoring a, a spacecraft and like sending telecommands to the spacecraft to tell the spacecraft where to look uh, on the surface of Venus, like on the clouds of Venus. That is cool. Wow. Like nothing to do with geology, nothing really to do with imagery because it was a spectrometer. But anyway, it was kind of cool. Uh, like I did that for three years. And, like, and then uh, we decided with my girlfriend to move to Canada. And at the time, I was kind of an expert in a programming language called IDL that is shipped with Envy. But I arrived in Canada and like no one was using Envy. And I was just, oh, okay, I know a language that no one used. So I need to do something else. I wanted to go back to geology a bit, but it didn't happen. A company in Montreal was looking for someone with SAR knowledge. So I did SAR. So I ended up learning how to program with Python, doing SAR analysis and SAR processing uh, in this company in Montreal. And this is where everything started because before I was just doing closed source software using IDL and then I discovered Python and the whole open source side of processing and like software and fast forward then. And that's where I started to look at web mapping and like cloud technology. And that's basically why I started Remote Pixel on the side to learn new technology Maybe that's where my career like shifted a bit from like just doing like satellite imagery processing and analysis to like doing more creating tools to like access the data and uh, distribute the data. So when I created Remote Pixel, like people started to reach out, reach out to me, like uh, people from my box, and like I was oh, okay, yeah, I'm just <laughs> one guy in Montreal. I'm a big fan of my box, and like so they asked me if I wanted a job. I say yeah. Absolutely. And then a couple of years after that, uh, I moved to uh, development seed to continue working on some uh, great open source uh, project and also like having a kind of impact uh, on different companies and like uh, organizations. So yeah, that's where I am right now, like working for development seed, helping like NGO or organization, like distribute and analyze their data. So which is kind of cool. So are you doing similar sorts of things between Mapbox and, and Development Seed? Or? So when I was at Mapbox, the, like my goal was just, hey, we have to make a static base map and like with the team. And like the, our goal was just, let's create the best static base map. So we had to ingest a lot of data. So my goal was just to create tools and like help the team like ingest as much data as we could. And then when I moved to development scene, my role kind of shifted, like, because now I'm creating tools and like, uh, like services to help people that have their own data, like to put the data on the map or helping people to create cloud optimization. And so they can like distribute and share the data like more easily when with a better data format. So yeah, the, my role shifted a, a bit. And so I'm like more, I'm still helping people, but not really, not only my team, but I'm trying to help as much people as I can. I think I first came across you through Remote Pixel, and I guess quite a lot of people did that way. There's a lot of data visualization and a lot of what I would class sort of pretty hardcore computing stuff involved in what you do. And yet you were talking about how you're a geologist by training. So have you self-taught yourself the computer side? Yeah, so as I mentioned, like I was an expert in IDL, but uh, still I learned IDL by myself when I was at the space agency and I did the same for Python. 
And I'm, I'm not a good student. To learn something, I have to do it by myself and I have to be focused on like getting something down. So like I learned Python, like because I had this project working with uh, satellite imagery, like uh, with Rima, uh, when I started Remote Pixel. So like my goal was just, hey, I need to learn Python so I can build this great website. And that's all I learned. So I learned how to code in HTML and JavaScript the same way. Like I wanted to build Remote Pixel. And like, because on, at the time on the market, like all the websites were quite complex and not simple. And, so, and that was the goal of Remote Pixel. But can I build the simplest website ever like to access Landsat data, for example? And so, and just to make people realizing like what they can do on the web. So yeah, I'm a self-taught developer. I'm pretty lucky that I have great mentors. Like uh, especially when I was at Mapbox, like I, I, I had to work with Sean Keys, for example, or Damon Burgett. And so um, they really helped me like to get on another level. When I look at all I've done for Remote Pixel and like the style and the, the coding, like when I look at what I do right now, that's totally different. But still it worked. Surely that's okay. I mean, your story is quite inspirational, I think. That's quite a, an amazing way to sort of say, look, I'm interested in this and I've set myself these goals and I'm going to develop my own career and take it into my own hands. I, I find that inspirational. Thanks. That's all I work. And also, you know, there's so many people who potentially see yourself as someone who knows a lot about COGS or, or anything like that. And it's so amazing that you've gone from being a geologist to being an expert in IDL and going, oh, well, that doesn't that doesn't work for career. I, I need to need to go here. Honestly, I think that's so inspirational. Thank you. And because I'm a self-doubt, there is no way I will never answer people. Like I learn stuff because other people wrote stuff on the web or like did or like answer my question. Uh, anyone that listening to the podcast, like if they have a question, just feel free to send me an email. It's interesting what you said about the mentors, though. You're not the first person I've spoken to who's really benefited from being in a company where there's other people. And again, if you spoke to them, they would say like, oh, I'm not the best coder. But just by dint of experience, you get people feeding into your code and tidying it up. And then you can maybe feed into theirs. And then you get a junior member and you can feed it. And it it's really cool. Right. My devil's advocate question. This is what I want to get you talking about. So we talk about stack and cogs, cloud optimized geotiffs a lot on the podcast. And we're very conscious that we could get stuck on only the technology that is in our line of sight. So <laughs> are these really as cool as we think they are? Cog is definitely, it's not cool. Because when you think about cog, cog are just a geotiff. So regular geotiff where you tidy a bit more the uh, internal way of uh, storing the data but like it's still like uh, uh, almost like a regular GeoTIF. so when you and when you think about that GeoTIF are kind of old so like yeah. they're maybe 10 or 20 years old like 1995 i guess so yeah it's cool now everyone talks about cloud optimization because they work great for the cloud infrastructures but if you only work with files locally and you don't have to share them and you don't have to build a web service around your rest of the data, you don't, don't need a cloud optimization. So I'm always, yeah, I'm, I'm the one like talking about cloud optimization, like tra trying to help people creating them, but like you don't really have to use cloud optimization if you don't need them. If you are happy with JPEG 2000, like I shouldn't say that, but if you are happy with them, like use them. 
okay, they are kind of cool, but it's a, like quite an old tech and has been around like for quite some time. The Geotiff itself, the cloud optimized way, just maybe newer. But it's not like a big thing. I think it really opens up the opportunities for people to do stuff with the amount of data that's come down. I get what you're saying about it not being a cool thing because it is an old format that's just been tweaked. But at the same time, the impact of what has happened is is huge. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I mean, what I was going to say is they are not cool, but they are really, really great when you have to store them on the cloud infrastructure and like access the data remotely without having to download every part of the data. And so you can build like really nice tools and services around cloud imaginative. I want to provoke you by saying... <laughs> yeah, well, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> welcome to be provoked. I want to say to you, why do companies or organizations like Development Seed get so behind open source? What's in it for them? So I guess like uh, Development Seed, so we are a service company, so we don't sell product, we don't sell like software. We sell our knowledge and like we know to develop nice web services nice uh, uh, UI, for example, nice website. So we don't really have to work with close source because like we are good working with open source and like some customers like that we do everything open source, some other customers just don't care. To me, open source is like more about knowledge sharing. Yep. You, there is this software that everyone can look at and like everyone can participate on. So they've said like just do open source because yeah, it's just easier for us to work and like uh, there is no point for us to sell software. We just, we are already selling the knowledge that we have on different uh, open source software. And I guess that's why a lot of companies are, are shifting to open source because they realize that there are a lot of developers working on open source projects. It's also easier to, to hire people when you work on open source because like, anyone can access the project. And so you don't have to uh, look for someone that knows IDL and that is, uh, which is a closed source uh, language. So yeah, I mean, that's uh, how DevSeed works. And uh, like why I also work for DevSeed is because everything we do is open source. I think my question is basically that I don't see it happening so much in Europe, in inverted commas. I, I don't know, but not as much as it appears to happen in North America, for example. My take on that is the cake is big. There are a lot of opportunities mm. and like there are a lot of companies, a lot of organizations that need people like me or like uh, like DevSeed. For example, uh, we made a project called T-Tiler, which kind uh, is kind of popular right now that lets you like create your dynamic tile server like, uh, and you can deploy it uh, everywhere you want. So yeah, it's open source, but like, Still, I'm getting a lot of people coming over, like asking a question, and like they want us to help them to deploy it. Tyler, where I'm trying my best to write the documentation and so make <laughs> it like as best as possible and as easy as possible. But still, I'm not really afraid that companies fork the, the repo and like try to maybe sell the knowledge to or to other companies. I mean, as I say, the cake. The cake is pretty big and we can all share a piece of it. I'm pretty sure at the end of the day, we win opportunities because more people will know us because we work on this project and like we were the one who are contributed. We always talk about, you know, the exciting launches, the accessibility of data. I mean, we talked about COGS and, and everything is always talked about. We're getting better all the time. 
But if we if we step back five years or so, when when you were looking at remote pixel, and I'm almost trying to put you in that position when you were doing that and you were getting involved in Python, what hasn't happened that we were all expecting it to happen? I think the commonality seems to be this kind of decrease in price of very high resolution optical data hasn't seemed to come down the pipeline. And the other thing that we often complain about is when we talk about open data it's often not as open as we'd like it to be you know kind of behind passwords behind firewalls you know is it radar set too i mean how do i get hold of that data no one knows no one knows (laughs) we're experts right oh yeah yeah. i've I've complained a a lot about rcm and radar set like because i'm in canada i love to like help the canadian a space agency or anyone like working on this data to open and distribute the data but like like it's get to politics and like it's quite complicated this is something that never happened people still talk about open data yeah we are going to publish this data but still like yeah at the end of the day it might not be open at all you need like a proprietary driver like jpeg 2000 to make it work well yeah. uh, you, you need to uh, to log into a ftp server that is like 10 kilobyte seconds to download gigabyte of data uh, you need to navigate like a really complex and like 2000 like uh, website Side to access the data and so yeah if you don't make efforts to make it really open that doesn't it's not worth it most of the big organization that have data know what what is cloud optimization so but still like if they don't build a nice website or like nice metadata database or like to to search for the data uh, like uh, it's pretty sad to have this amount of data that might be in a good format but just not available the sentinel 2 was request to pays and is now downloadable by aws and landsat's moving in july to request to pays usgs sometimes it feels like we take one step forward and then take two steps back but then you could argue jpeg 2000 what thought went in behind that Are, are we just like wow we Crikey, this 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 has worked, and now we've got a lot of data, and the usability is not quite there on the front end. It's just slap a map on it, and we'll click on it. I mean, remote pixel. I mean, I, don't, I haven't been on it in a while, but I imagine it's still easier to use than a lot of the the tools that are, are available in in that sense. Most of the page of remote pixel now are like must be deprecated because I haven't worked on remote pixel for two years now, so I'm pretty sure like more than half of the website doesn't work. I had this talk. Uh, couple months or years ago with someone and I was just like, yeah, the focus of the politics are just create the data, then we'll think about how people mm. will access it. I don't know, I wasn't there when they decided to create JPEG 2000 for the data uh, for Sentinel-2. I, I didn't, I wasn't there when they say, hey, SciHub is the best website on the world. I guess like it's just pretty cool. Let's focus on first on creating the data and then we'll see what happens. And like, and then they realize, oh, there is this company called uh, Synergize. They say, hey, we want ju- we'll just put the data on AWS and uh, yeah. we'll see what happens. And then what they did was just great. They, they put the data on AWS, realized that every a lot of people were going to use it, put the data in request or pay because a lot of people were using the yeah. data and someone has to pay at the end of the day. And the same for Landsat. So now the Landsat collection two is going to be uh, curved. They put the data in request or pay because someone has to pay. USGS is a nice organization, but it's a political decision. I will say that putting COG in a request or pay uh, bucket, it's not a bad decision. Like Because COG 
are quite easy, easy to access remotely. And so the cost of being in requester phase is not as big as uh, it could be with GPEG 2000. Is there a technology or a project that either you're involved in or that you see that is just sort of getting going that you think is going to be really sort of exciting in the next two or three years? I'm working a lot with GDAL. And uh, to me, there are still a lot a lot of excitement going on that because the library is massive. It's fast, not as fast as people want sometimes. So there are a lot of work to, to, to do on, on GDAL, but people are trying to look at, hey, can we do the same as GDAL for cloud imaginative, but without using GDAL? So there is the whole no GDAL thing uh, going on on Twitter. Uh, and so there are ways to work with raster data without using GDAL and yeah. like dark being developed right now and so that's exciting too because I love GDAL I love Rasterio but if there are better ways to access raster data without carrying the, this massive library maybe it's a good idea and so I know my friend uh, Jeff Arbach is working on IEO Cogeo which is like a async IO library to access cloud uh, majority. The whole async IO in Python, like like I, I won't go in detail in async Python, but like it can make like uh, web services faster because you don't block the Python code uh, waiting for the data to arrive. You just do something else while you wait. And let's go also for JavaScript or like Julia. Making raster analysis uh, async IO friendly that may be a good thing and like maybe a, a big shift. That's a nice thing. Also like working with data in the client. So my other friend, Kyle Byron, working with the uh, DeckGL, uh, this company called Unfolded. Like they do everything in the client side. So they don't do processing on the web server, they do processing on the web page directly. And so that's pretty nice. Like you, you download the data once on your web page and like do whatever you want. Like you can click and get the value and of the, of the raster data directly and do, do processing on it. So bringing the data directly to the client side, that's also something really exciting. That's basically two podcast episodes right there. Yeah, those sound amazing. How important has Twitter been, do you think? Twitter has been my life. I won't be there without Twitter. Yeah. Like uh, since I joined, like uh, the amount of information, the amount of, of knowledge shared through Twitter to me has been amazing. I know it's like kind of closed source of information because it's only via Twitter. But to me, like, yeah, I won't be there without Twitter. And it's such a nice community as well, it seems, which is nice for Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap things up there. Vincent, it's been brilliant talking to you. I think, as you can probably tell, there's at least three or four episodes <laughs> left of stuff that we could probably talk about. And maybe one day at a conference, be able to sit down with you and uh, have a beer and, and talk about some of these things. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Vincent. We encourage you to drop us a line through Twitter using at EOSceneFrom, where you can find a vibrant community based around the podcast. Thanks for listening, and that's it for now. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Alistair. If I could stop being middle-aged, I would be...
Podcast music is Cracker Jacks and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. Available on freemusicarchive.org.